so I've been on the job like two weeks, right? And and I've, I've got this bug to design this new point. And so I, I sit down and, and this is, you know, this is in the days when AutoCAD, if you did a refresh on the screen, you go make a cup of tea, come back and it would be about halfway done. So pretty slow stuff. Oh yeah. So we did a lot of stuff still with vellum, right? Drawing with actual ink on vellum or pencil and then ink to make a, a drawing for a part, like a point or whatever. I think vellum might be before my time. What is that? Like vellum a transparent is, paper? Yeah, exactly. Okay. A heavy, heavyweight, transparent, very dense paper built to last, right? This is the stuff that you would use to make a blueprint later. Okay. Okay. So we had a blueprinting machine and everything, the whole nine yards. We're in Van Nuys and, and, and we're in the engineering department and it is old school, man. Just a big room full of drafting boards. Okay. And I'm sitting there and I'm drafting away and I'm creating this new point and I get the drawing done and I proudly take it to a guy, the second, the first guy outside the Easton family to be hired, a guy by the name of Larry Belden. Larry's a legendary guy, right? Larry is, by this point, Larry's 70-something years old. He's a little bit of a curmudgeon. Every engineer in the building is scared to death of him because he's got a reputation to take your head off if you make the slightest mistake. Makes, you know, he basically made Jim Easton look warm and fuzzy. <laughs> Sounds like a fun guy to work for. He was great to me. I don't know what reason. I, he just took me under his wing. And, you know, Larry Belden, this guy designed the first carbon barrel for a rifle that was used by the 1980 American biathlon team. Okay? So it had like zero coefficient of thermal expansion. It didn't didn't change its zero from 70 degrees to minus 70 degrees. That kind of stuff, right? Yeah. This guy was a, a real renaissance man. Anyway, I could tell stories about Larry all day long, but this is one story. So I've designed this point, and I bring the vellum to Larry, and I say, Larry, can you get this prototype for me? He goes, yep, I'll have a dozen of them for you by tomorrow. He takes about two minutes of looking at the drawing, kind of nods, says, okay, yeah, we'll have them done for you tomorrow. Comes back to my office at 12 noon the next day, and one by one drops a dozen points into my palm. And the very first one I notice, along with all the other ones, is gold-plated. It's plated in 24 karat gold. And I'm like, Larry, what's up with the 24 karat gold plating? He goes, well, with the tolerances you put on that SOB, I figured it wouldn't cost any more to plate the damn thing in gold. He turns around and walks out. <laughs> what happened was I transposed a decimal place on the drawing, on the tolerance for the weight. Uh, and it, it would have cost like 100 bucks a point <laughs> to make it at that tolerance. <laughs> but instead of taking my head off like he normally would or what was reputed to do, he just kind of made his point by making the points. He made them himself, made them perfect, and then gold-plated them just to, just to illustrate his point about being more careful about my drawings. <laughs> and you can guarantee I never made that mistake again. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and I'm here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson. We're back for another Easton podcast. Sorry for the delay uh, I've been in Asia. Steve's been busy. He's been on the road kicking tail and taking names. And uh, we've had an eventful couple of weeks. Yeah. And hey, I should say everywhere I go, people have been asking me when we're going to get a new podcast out. So I think, you know, hey, maybe we got something going here. Well, let me just say thank you to those folks who've been listening in and, and, and for the occasional uh, emails we've been getting asking when and and all that thing. We're trying to do this regularly, of course. And I think we've been okay with it. But yeah, this has been the longest spell we've had. And I was going to, we were going to do the podcast last Friday, but quite frankly, I got quite sick after my return from Asia. So I was in no shape to do a uh, podcast, except maybe on the phone. So anyways, I'm back and Steve's here. And uh, so we're, we're, we've got a pile of your questions that we're going to go through in a little while. But right now, Steve, you just got back from uh, what I'd say would be the first big indoor tournament of the season. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a big one, you know, but it was a competitive well, had some tournament. Big, had some heavy hitters. Yeah, I was in Mexico. Um, I happened to be there for a wedding. Linda told me to bring my bow. I Linda's cousin up. got married. Yeah, Linda's cousin got married. So, um, congrats, Teto. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we went to a, a tournament in a, a city called Aguas Calientes, which means hot water, war, warm waters. I guess what they said they translated it as, and uh, it was a really fun tournament and. Um, some of the the top Mexican shooters and uh, Stefan Hansen had happened to be in town with the world champion yeah, from Denmark. Yeah, he happened to be in town with Aida Roman, so he and I had a good head to head battle, and it was a real good start to the indoor season. I see. So yeah, it was. 
Yeah, I I, uh, I heard you took him out with a 150 final pass there. I Yeah, he had shot like three straight 150s. So going into the gold medal match, I figured I needed a 150 just to just to tie. Just to keep up. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I'm not... I'm not the most talented shooter. I don't have a lot of 150s in the bag. So You're a good grinder, though. I, I play the card when I have to, you know, and uh, I played the 150 card and it worked. Dropped a 150 on the Fresh Prince on the uh, final. Yeah, turned the volume up to 150. Okay, kind of ruined his day. Uh, it was it was How a bad fun could match. it be? He was hanging with Ida. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, you know, it's not a, an indoor World Cup or something, you know. I mean, so. he's in Mexico. I mean, what's the weather like in Denmark right now? Yeah. Was, exactly. You know, it was a nice 75 degrees, probably around, you know, 19, So good stuff Celsius. there. Not to turn this into a celebrity uh, focus, but uh, I guess Stefan and, and Ida have had a bit of a relationship thing going on, huh? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we aren't TMZ, but, you know. <laughs> but yeah, they're dating. It's cool. They're a nice couple. Well, that's how things start. Yeah, I, I I recall a certain Steve Anderson dating a certain top Mexican uh, archer, and it turned out to be something bigger than that, huh? Yeah, a lot bigger. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of uh, big big archery in uh, in that part of the world, how about that Sarah Lopez? Holy smokes! Throwing down fourteen twenty four. Yeah, and it if you ask me, Sarah's got more in the tank. Yeah. You know, I mean, she, she left a, some points on the board. Yeah, I think she went 354 at 70, 355 at 60, uh, 356 at 50 meters. Yeah, and cleaned it at 30 with 26X. Yeah, I mean, it. Holy cow. I mean, that's. My opinion to that round, you know, if, if, uh, the, if it's good conditions, 70 is easier than 50. But it wasn't good conditions. I heard yeah, it was hot was and windy. Some wind. So, yeah, she's. And I mean, we've seen Sarah shoot 358 at 50 meters. At uh, I think she did that at Turkey this year, her first half. So I, I legitimately think Sarah could shoot 15, or excuse me, a 1430. Mm. I think if you if you stuck the best shooters in the world out there on a good day and everything you know came together, I I think in in that round the 70, 60, 50, 30, I think you could see a 15, or excuse me, a 1435 ish. You know, the thing is, I mean, she, she broke the um, the previous compound women's record, which was Christina uh, Christina Berger, Christina Hagenhauser's mm-hmm. record uh, that she set back in 2013, which I understand was a 14-18, although you and I both thought maybe it was a little higher than that, but WA says 14-18, we've got yeah. to take it for this. So that's a six-point crush on that record. Yeah. And she beat the 50-meter record, two points more than Jamie Van Natta's 354 that was shot way back in 2007. Um all four distances, the combined score, also world records. So, I mean, this is uh, epoch-making round, but, you know, I think the big problem here is partly the fact that there's a real dearth of the opportunity to shoot 1440 rounds. Yeah, people don't do it anymore. Yeah, it's just not available as much. I think it's a darn shame because I think it's still the benchmark. Uh, yeah, I do too, but I will say the best shooter in the world has the record now, so she just yeah. needed to shoot it a couple Can't times. Can't argue that one. Yeah. Although by no means are we saying anything other than you know, uh, just upping the, uh, upping the. Yeah. You know, just getting it, getting it done more. But and it's higher than uh, you know. Obviously, men shoot ninety when they shoot a fourteen forty round. But I'll bet you take a top man, a Mike Schluser, uh, and put him on that round. He might get close, but boy, it'd be tough row to hoe to match that score. Not easy. At 90 meters? Or? Well, no, no. I'm talking, you know, if you took a man and put him on that same round, mm-hmm. they'd have to work pretty hard to match that record. Yeah, you you take Sarah's name away from it and just look at the scores shot, and you're like, that's regardless of the person, man, woman, you know, that's a good score. <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, this is archery. It, it If you can pull back the bow, and I think Sarah pulls back 55-ish pounds, it's doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you know. Yeah, you know, Pete uh, Peter Elzing has got the fourteen nineteen men's record. That ninety meters, that you know, that twenty meters makes a big difference for that that long distance. But yeah. still, I mean, well, I mean, you know, I look at it and I go, okay, so you're switching ninety for sixty. For me, a good score at sixty meters is three fifty five plus. At ninety meters, three forty two plus is you know I want to hit three forty two. I'm hitting half tens, yeah, half nines, yeah. So. You know that's a that's a thirteen point swing, just amazing. So um, it looks like that's going to be officially ratified by World Archery. I think they're just uh, working it through their system because they got to get the scorecards and all that stuff. But. Yeah, and that'll give Sarah every outdoor world record. 
just phenomenal. Yeah. So she's uh, she's got them all. I, I think if and she's, she's never shot an indoor FIDA. She's quoted um, in WA's story is wanting to go after some of the indoor and the mixed team records now. And um, you know, Erica Jones and Rio Wild shot that uh, one fifty nine in 2012 yeah that'll that'll eventually fall someone will shoot a 160 well uh certainly sarah and uh one of her teammates from from colombia uh camilo yeah cardonia right Mm -hmm. he uh he and she have shot that same score as she says like four times yeah there's no reason why they can't clean it that's just a matter of two people getting together at the right time and the right weather yeah the right and the right weather. weather which you know turkey's tough and uh i see that as a first opportunity for this because the weather's really tough at the first event you know and yeah so anyway we'll see but wow props to sarah lopez yeah. crushing it like to see her at uh some of the indoor stuff maybe neem or something like that this year that would be good 595 is well within her reach too so let's talk about the indoor season coming up a little bit first off our deepest I can't even, you know, I mean, there's no words for what we were thinking about what's happening in France. And uh, for my friends, many dozens of friends that I have there, uh, and, you know, my my deepest sympathy, but also um, strongest support for them to stay strong and to get through this and and uh, stay safe, you know. Yeah. But, you know, there's been some controversy over the fact that there was the uh, issue in, in Antalya, and we've got the world indoor scheduled for Antalya, excuse me, Ankara, Turkey. And we've got the world indoor scheduled for Ankara. And, and I'll just jump right ahead here to a question we got from Marcus Hanier, our mm-hmm. friend Marcus in Australia. And he says, George, question for the podcast. I'd be interested in hearing your and Steve's thoughts on the world indoor being so close to a major war zone this year. Has quite a few of the Aussie shooters worried about attending, and I believe many from the U.S. are feeling the same. Do you think it should be moved, and should WA have a policy on events held so close, close to uh, to trouble spots? What isn't a trouble spot now, right? Yeah. What's not a trouble spot now? New York? No, definitely a trouble spot. I mean, no matter you you gotta you gotta assume that anywhere you go, you run the risk of you know being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, is the right thing to do to back down to bad people getting their way? I don't think so. My no. personal philosophy on this is life goes on, and we've got to keep it going on. Just like the Parisians have been showing in the last few days, we have to keep going with Neem. We have to keep going with the World Cup events. We have to keep going because, in the face of evil, you know, ignoring it or, or bowing to it is—I just think it's the wrong thing to do. Now, yeah. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, and I—I I had some opinions on you know competing in Ankara, and I'm not going to go for other reasons. But you know, now now that I think about it, it's like. <sighs> You know, like you say, where where do you go these days where there's not, you know, threat? Yeah, and in my case, I'm more determined to go to Ankara, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm more determined to go and support the tournament and right. more determined to go to Nîmes, show support for the people in France, more determined to, to, carry, to, to carry on with archery. You know, and our sport, yeah. is, our sport is a small thing in the big scheme of things, but all these little small things add up into something big, and that's our social system, and we can't, I, you know... I. Yeah, they're they're making an attack on our economics, really, and and our lifestyle. Yeah, if everything know. stops, then we do take a hit. So I think our best way to show our our support of France and our support of every other place that's been victimized by people like this, Madrid, Boston, London, is keep on going. Yep. You know. So Definitely. that's my personal attitude about that, Marcus. If uh, if that answers your question. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, if I were to to have to say. You know, World Archery is having their meeting in December regarding Ankara. I would have to say before this, maybe there was a chance they might have moved it. Now, you know, I time to double down. Yeah, I think I don't think it's going anywhere. So, you know, I spoke to Chris Marsh. Chris was in town for the um, site check for the World Cup starting in 2017 here in Salt Lake City, and Chris mm-hmm. and I spent some time um, on Friday discussing this very subject. And of course, it was before the tragic circumstances that took place, or maybe right during Just, the yeah around you know, the what, same. He time. and I were having the conversation just as some of these things were going on in Paris. And, um, of course, unbeknownst to us, right? Yeah. But the attitude generally was, you know what? Turkey's going to pull out all the stops needed to keep everything safe. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm confident that's the case. Yeah. Right? You know? it, it, I remember when I, I competed in, in Croatia back in 19, no, 2004. Yeah, 2004. Shot in the world uh, field there. 18 miles from Bosnia. Walking around with USA on my back. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, feelings are still pretty strong between the Croats and the Serbs and the, you know, the whole ethnic cleansing thing that took place that started right in the venue where we were shooting. Wow. I mean, it was in Plavitska National Forest, and it was, I'll put it this way, you weren't supposed to go too far off trail because there could be unexploded munitions and, and landmines and stuff, right? Interesting. We had 125 plainclothes policemen to provide for security for ourselves and the British team. Yeah. Because apparently we were under threat, mindlessly walking around with USA on our back. But, <laughs> you know, the point I'm making is you're as, you're, you know, you cannot give in to people who are bent on breaking your way of life. Mm-hmm. Cannot do it. And, and part of that is going to be keep on keeping on with events in places like Turkey, places like Nîmes, places like Paris. Yeah. I hope we have a tournament in Paris. It'd be great. You know, next year I'll be going to a tournament in Japan, not far from where they had their disaster in 2011. I'm not the least bit concerned about, you know, the environmental safety there. Right. It's it's a show of support for the people who've got to live every day with what they've got to live with. And my opinion on that is that that's our responsibility. Some people may choose not to take that responsibility. But, you know, I, I'm i taking that as my responsibility. I know you would if you had the circumstance of going to that same event. So that I, I think that covers it pretty well. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so on to the next subject. We have some more questions. We've got a lot of questions. Yeah, where do you want to start? Oh, we have Adrian who asked us. Uh, Adrian's in Australia, right? Newcastle? Yeah, we've got three questions from him. They're good questions, too. Number one, he says, how much is it the archer? How much is it the equipment that makes up a good score? And he notes that he's shooting a 1984 Hoyt Pro Medalist. (laughs) Well, you know, the the 84 Hoyt Pro Medalist is a tack driver. I know it's a little before your time, Steve, but, you know, it's... It's four years before I was It's the bow that defined Hoyt in the modern era as a compound target company. Uh, It was the first bow released as a compound, as a target compound by Hoyt after their acquisition by Easton in 1983. And that bow was, it's got round wheels, you know, it's got energy wheels, what's called energy wheels, right? Mm-hmm. Very, very smooth, you know, basically a, a almost semicircular four-straw curve. So super smooth, optimized. I mean, you know, this thing's got like a 48-inch axle axle. I mean, it's just a really Probably long. like a 55% let off or mm-hmm. so. Easily, yeah. yeah. And it was suitable for fingers, mm-hmm. if that tells you something. You know, uh, still had a metal cable rigging on it at that time it was before the aim system was introduced by hoyt mm-hmm. which is now used by everybody right and um super stable riser you know straight pretty much straight but still what you and i would consider to be a reasonable deflex riser and um you know wood core limbs high-end very good quality laminated wood core limbs and just a, a very nice package and back then they were a thousand bucks really yeah so you know a thousand bucks in 1984 is three or four today so anyway, um, that bow, yeah, you could probably buy a new bow and get better results on some level because that's got a fairly sloppy valley, you know. Um, but if you're just starting out, you know, I'd say this will get you the 80th percentile, 85th percentile, and anything after that, yeah, I don't think you can buy too many more points. Yeah, the, my thing is... And I was talking about this the other day, you know, you could, the new bows have so many features to them, so many tuning features. Uh, You know, you get such different feel um, at full draw. As you mentioned, the valleys are completely different. The new cams are completely different. String materials too, because that steel cable was married to a Dacron string. Yeah. So if you want to avoid chasing your peep, maybe that's (laughs) an upgrade right there. Yeah. And, and just the amount, do you buy points with a new bow? Uh, compared to that one, yeah, frankly, I think you do. You know, if you're shooting a a 2008 Hoyt Ultra Elite, you know, something like that, do you buy points? Um, maybe. You know, there's at the at the high end. My my philosophy on this, I will never be beat with equipment. So if there's if there's better equipment out there, I want to have it. Um, if I'm going to get beat, it's because someone beat me, you know, yeah. not because they had better stuff than me. So you just uh, you just made a switch in site manufacturers this past week, didn't you? Yeah, I went to uh, Shibuya sites, back to Shibuya sites, I should say. When I when I first started working at Hoyt, I was shooting Shibuya sites and 
Um, switch to something them. else after yeah, a while. I, and yeah, I made a switch, and well, I probably made two switches. I think you know yeah. it's, it was it wasn't uncommon for me to try a lot of different stuff. And I think the reliability of the Shibuya site might be the the highlight there. Yeah, it was uh, number one. I can work on it myself, you know, very easily, and it gives you the schematics on how to how to do that. Every and, part. Yeah. It's super easy to work with. I never had problems with them before. They are by far the smoothest site in terms of, you know, the actual clicks and things like that. And just the, the build and craftsmanship is really nice. And, um, they're extremely quiet. You know, some of my other sites have been a little louder on the bow, some stuff rattling around, I assume, but really like my Shibuya's really like the Shibuya company and happy to have them. Well, I was happy to bring them back from Japan for yeah, you. Yeah. I made George play mule. <laughs> and that's all we're saying about that all right he paid customs of course yes of course anyway um the next question we've got from adrian here of the three good questions he's sent us um he's saying that uh you know he liked archery and he was in school and his mother wanting to do the best for him went out and spent a lot of money on a good bow for him and looking back he says it was too heavy for him his scores dropped he couldn't really understand why and he drifted away to other activities the bow sat in the cupboard for 30 years till he got it out and started shooting again so um do we have any insights for parents about young archers well you just uh adrian you just gave us a good one don't go buy a bunch of stuff for your kid until they have an opportunity to get some coaching and some guidance some good coaching some good coaching i mean some coaching is better than no coaching. Yeah. Uh, not everybody has access to good coaching or even knows what it is if they see it, though. As, mm-hmm. You know, that's the biggest problem. So if you're in the United States, the USA Archery uh, website, usaarchery.org, has a list of accredited coaches. What you're going to look for is a level two-ish or higher. Mm-hmm. And you're going to look for a place that's got a club, a Junior Olympic Archery Development uh, yeah, generally that's a good place to start. Learn from others' experiences, you know. Well, and typically, here's the real thing. These guys have got equipment generally. You can try stuff. Yeah, you can try before mm-hmm. you buy, and you can figure out whether the child likes the sport, which is yeah. the very first thing. You can take 100 kids and put a bow in their hand, and after six weeks, you'll probably still have 30 that are still interested in shooting. And after another six weeks, you might have maybe... I don't know, five, five. Yeah. that are really into it. The, yeah. And maybe three of those are going to spend, you know, all their spare time shooting arrows. And, and so that winnowing process means that there's probably a lot of bows sitting in closets. Yeah. Don't go buy a bow. Don't go buy a bunch of gear until you know that the kid is going to like what they're doing. But yeah. for goodness sake, please do get them to a club and, and do get them started rather than have them sit behind a video game. Yeah, and there's even when you do know they're going to retain interest, you know, there's different levels of gear you can start with. I mean, if as a kid becomes more advanced, you know, maybe you start them out with something like a, a Hoyt Ignite or a Ruckus, yeah. probably, you know, an Ignite if, depending on the size. Then they move towards something, you know, as they as they become more advanced, you can tell they're going to be a little more serious about competing. Then you have the, you know, the small frame bows like the Pro Comp FX, things like that. But there's... And a lot of manufacturers have options. Yeah, but you've been um, describing compounds here, and I'll, I'll just point out one yeah. thing, okay? This is important to point out because I've heard this story more than once. More, more, than, more than maybe five times now in the last year, which makes me uncomfortable thinking how many times this must happen. Literally, just a couple of weeks ago, Trevor over at the Archery Center was telling me that a mother had brought their kid in with a compound bow that they'd bought and wanted to know how to get involved in Olympic archery. <laughs> well, you're laughing, but you know, nobody's going to get involved in Olympic compound until well after 2024. Right. It's not going to happen. If it ever does. Well, it, it's going to eventually happen, I'm sure. But it's not going to happen until at least 2024, maybe 2028. Right. If you're buying a 12-year-old compound bow, expecting to take it up for Olympic archery, they, you got the wrong focus. Sorry, reality check. Mm-hmm. You know. I've had I've had people arguing about me with this in certain social media circles lately. You know, it's like you know, well, Easton and Hoyt are pushing hard for it, so it's going to happen. Well, actually, no, Easton and Hoyt aren't pushing for it at all. All of the pull for Olympic compound is coming from World Archery. All right. the effort is coming from World Archery. Why? We, we, you know, you can say, well, they must have a vested. In- we don't have a vested interest in selling compounds for Olympic archery. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true because 
you know, Hoyt's selling all the recurves they can build. And quite frankly, it's just going to be added cost in terms of sponsorship, et cetera, to the company to to put compound in Olympic archery. So there's not a big push coming from the archery manufacturers. The pull is coming from world archery, as it should. And if compound eventually gets into the games, which I, I do think it will, you know, that'll be in a healthy way. It won't be pushed by the endemic sponsors in the sport. Yeah, that's not the way you want to no. have it come about. because no, that's that's the wrong motivation. As as compound becomes more universal, and it's not by any means as universal as recurve, but as it becomes more universal, more accepted at more in more countries for the purpose of target archery, then you're going to see a bigger push eventually, but you're not going to see it in the next 10 years. No, that's uh, that was something I was talking about with a guy just recently. You know, he's uh, mid 40s, and uh, and he said, you know, I'll never have a if, if compound does come about, I'll never have a chance, anyways. You know, he's a fairly competitive shooter now, a uh, great indoor shooter, and uh, but you know that's what he pointed out was it's it's so far off that. Well, you look at we who's, who's winning Olympic it, medals know? right now is between the ages of 20 and 30. Yeah. Uh, typically, okay, there's a few exceptions. <clears throat> and in that age group, if you're starting with a compound right now and you're 20-something, by the time compound's in the Olympic Games... You're at the tail end of yeah. your career. Go after world championships, go after national team slots, go after other stuff, but don't be focused on the Olympics yeah. for compound. I mean, right there's, there's even in compound, you know... Rio at, I can't remember how old he is, Rio 44, 42? Real wild? Yeah. No, he's not even that old, is he? Yeah, maybe you're right. Now he's 40-something, he, yeah. Yeah. Um, I always forget. Sorry, Rio. But, you know, he's he's one of the few athletes at, at that age that he would still make the team. Not to mention know. his old man. Yeah. <laughs> D. D could probably make half the teams out there if he put his mind to it right yeah. now. He's, uh, he's a tough cookie, that D wild. He has to be to have kids like uh, Logan and Rio. <laughs> All right. So, anyway, I, I just went off the uh, tracks there with that subject, probably. But uh, just just a point, right? To you know, not spend a lot of money on on starter bows until they've had a chance to get their feet wet and see and, if they like it and know the direction they want to go. Exactly. All right. Yep. Last question from uh, from Adrian in Newcastle, Australia, was: Do you know any good novelty shooting games? With Christmas and the festive season coming up, do you have any novelty games to suggest for the club party? I can think of shooting an apple off a dummy's head, William Tell style. Have you come across any other novelty activities that you think are a lot of fun? A couple of them. Card games involving archery. Uh, some folks play various card games by putting the cards up, and then you've got to shoot the card you know, to, uh, to deal it, as it were. That's one. But another one, and I'm not so sure this is a, appropriate for an indoor range, but for an outdoor range, when I would get bored or uh, burned out from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of arrows when I was a resident athlete down in San Diego, what we would do is we'd take a one-gallon milk jug, that would be a four-liter jug for you guys down in Australia, plastic, you know, heavy-duty plastic jug, tape the mouth of it shut, and chase it around the field with blunts. So one person would shoot it, and then the next person would have to hit it and call the shot for the next one, etc. And you'd be chasing that thing around. And believe it or not, that's tremendous fun. You yeah, wouldn't believe how much fun that is. That reminds me of a game uh, I've seen played where they do, you know, they, they attach two of those jugs together. They tie them with line. They run them up to, a, you know, a, an anchor point up top. And then whoever can empty the jug the fastest by shooting it, you know, whoever drops the other person's jug to the ground wins. Oh, okay, by punching holes through it. Yeah, so you want to punch a hole right in the bottom. Okay, know. so this one's full, full of water. I'm talking about one that was empty, but yeah, yeah you're talking about one full of fill, water. Fill with water, yeah. Do it with some old fletchings. And flu-flus or something, maybe. Uh, you know, your regular arrows, but okay. it's not going to hurt. It might damage interesting, some fletching. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like a dueling tree. Yeah, 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 to a, to a point. So that's the other thing is, um, you know, a dueling tree that you can set up with balloons. Now, what am I talking about, dueling tree? Well, you could take six balloons, two, two rows of six balloons, and the idea here is first guy to pop all the balloons is the winner. He's got to start with his own column, right? He gets to the bottom of the column first, he wins. Mm-hmm. So just a couple of ideas. There's plenty of them out there. That, might, probably that might not be good for the shot execution, you know. <laughs> Especially with the compound. Yeah. Ka-chunk. All right. What's your next one? Uh, so we've got one from Lucy. I'm guessing she's in the, the UK area. Uh, she has a question. She started shooting 18 months ago 
in master's grade, loves the sport, shooting reasonable target scores. Uh, she had, a, as she describes, a modest ladies' compound setup. And That's slowly, how we know she's British. Yeah. She bought a very modest ladies' compound setup. Slowly upgraded the accessories and arrows, uh, but not the bow. Do I need to? Does a shooter grow out of a bow? I would say it depends on what it is. There's, If you're in a, a very beginner's bow, chances are it's a very gentle draw curve. Chances are it's a very low string tension at full draw. Uh, people don't really talk about that, but string tension at full draw is, is an important part of accuracy to me. You don't want one that's real loose and sloppy. You want one that's got some some tension to it and what that helps create is accuracy coming off your face you know it, it uh, less deflection as you fire less imperfections actually perceived on the target face okay, so what's the practical what's the practical aspect of that what kind of cam or what kind of a setup does that for you uh, well i mean if she's using a, a a cam on a what i would call like a beginner's bow that has you know crazy amount of adjustment give me an example like a charger like a, no. Uh, no, like a like a Hoyt Ignite or a Diamond Razor Edge or something like that. You know, okay. They're, they're very adjustable. We don't know, right? We don't know yeah, what we don't she's know what got. She's got so. well, one that's maybe not optimized for a specific right. setup. Yeah, it's more broad use, beginners type stuff. A little wider valley maybe. Yeah. So it, so, it, it so, will make a So wait, the, character, a the character of what you're talking about, would you associate that with something like a spiral cam maybe? Yeah, I mean, a spiral cam is going to be ultra high string tensions, whereas, you know, a GTX cam is going to be a little lower. Because um, remember, we've got a lot of folks who aren't really versed in some of this stuff listening in, so I just want to try to help define mm-hmm. some of what that means. So to me, I mean, you you take a GTX cam, like I said, it's got a lower string. T- it's still very applicable for yeah. target archery, but the spiral cam has got a little higher string tension at full draw. And this you'll notice, I mean, if you were to pull one back and you know grab the string you'd feel that but in my mind and and with what i've experienced a bow with an appropriate amount of string tension at full draw an appropriate draw force curve is far more accurate to your imperfect shots than is a you know a youth bow or something like that that's that's not meant for ultimate performance is meant for a wide range of adjustability. Are you suggesting that's more forgiving in some way? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to add this though. Lucy points out that hers still shoots fine and her scores are improving. What do you think? And how would you choose a replacement? So the, how would you choose a replacement part's been covered by Steve, but I want to point out that if your scores are still improving, you probably don't need to switch out of your boat quite yet. Yeah. Until you see a plateau. Yeah. When you see a plateau over a period of time, how long? Um, who knows? A couple months. How much you shoot? Yeah, yeah, month, two months. Then maybe start shopping around. Yeah, I mean, if you're stuck at you know a, a two eighty five indoor for a month, that, and you feel like you know you're you're putting when you feel like you're out shooting your bow, that's probably when it's time to go. But All right. it's hard to it's hard to get to that point for a lot of people. Well, you know? it's impossible for most people to be honest, yeah. right? And if you have an opportunity, borrow someone else's bow and shoot a game with that. That's what I was thinking. You know, if you can find somebody with a similar draw length and, mm-hmm. you know, who's willing to let you try it, uh, you might find that you aim a lot better. That's one thing that... Number one, yeah. Here's another one. Uh, this one comes from Roger Harris. Roger says, um, do you think... He, his question is, do you think there's an optimum axle-to-axle length depending on draw length? And he's pointing out that for target shooting, he has a 30-inch draw and he's been shooting an Alpha Max 32. Great bow for the field, not so comfortable for target. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I think, uh, let me just take one shot at this, and, and maybe you take off with the correct answer. <laughs> uh, if you can't touch your nose to the string in some way, shape, or form, it's probably too short. Yeah, or if you feel like you're, you're or really your scrunching into the peep. Yeah, that's, I mean, it should be something comfortable. As you come to full draw, there shouldn't be a whole lot of manipulation needed to to get to a comfortable anchor point. Um, there's really no... There's no great measurement of string angle. You know, no one says, okay, at a 30-inch draw, this bow provides this string angle. No manufacturer does that. Um, so it's kind of just something I guess you could take that into account. You know, I mean, you look at the like the new Hoyt Hyper Edge. It's a 36-inch bow, but I would imagine the string angle on that is probably very comparable to my 40-inch bow. Yeah, in fact, they showed a diagram that kind of yeah. illustrates that because of what the cams do when they get... Yeah, the when they roll out less less limb tip movement, so they don't drop down as far. The cams are larger diameter. There, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, what are the trade offs with a bow like that? 
I don't know. I haven't shot one. Gotcha. They uh, they don't make it in my draw length. So. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. They don't make a lot of stuff in your draw length, big guy. Yeah. What but the, the fact of the matter is at 30-inch draw, yeah, you should be looking at something in the neighborhood of a you know 37 or 40 inch bow now uh, roger points out that he doesn't get to practice as much as he should so he's considering dropping his bow weight from 60 down to 50 is it correct that bows shoot better at their maximum weight yeah um, he's using an alpha max 32 yeah i i don't believe so now i think it's ideal to have your bolts maxed out you don't believe it's required that or, or you, you don't believe that bows shoot better at their max no just to clarify okay yeah i mean it's the bow is repeatable you know regardless yeah it's uh, not changing now you know there's not a big geometry change on a bow like this particular one because of the parallel limb design if i'm yeah. not mistaken right this There's is not a whole lot happens when you actually right. back out a bowl that's what i mean you're just decreasing the stress on the limbs a little bit but the geometry is not really being compromised here mm -hmm. so this type of bow you can probably get away with that yeah you'd okay. probably be fine hi george and big cat there is limited info on stabilization. Could you go over starting points for weight and length for front and side rods and then touch on what to look for when making adjustments? Cheers and thanks for the podcast. Handsome Dave Castle. I like that. I'll bet you that he bet his <laughs> friends that we couldn't, you know, that we wouldn't call we him We wouldn't that call him Handsome would, Dave. But he signed it that way. Yeah. So I don't think we have a choice. Well, if he's got the nerve to sign it that way, we've got to say it. Well, we're no Ron Burgundy. We won't read anything that comes across the teleprompter. True enough. But, you know. For the most part, we'll. All right, then, handsome we'll Dave. Here's to let's, here's yeah, let's try to give him a, an answer here. <laughs> Starting points for weight, length for front and side rods. Now, here's the problem. Uh, he didn't really tell us what he's shooting. He, based off his next questions, I think he's shooting a compound. He does have a peep sight question later on. All so. right, good. Okay, so we know. All right, so let's uh, let's cover that for him from your point of view. He's so a 3D guy, I guess. For for front rod length, the most important thing is that, is that it gives you a good, comfortable resting position when That's you're no loading joke. your I'm arrow. telling you right now. You know, we had KSL over <laughs> at the Archery Center, uh, the local TV station, and I'm explaining the stabilizers and, you know, I'm making my usual lame puns about how, well, this isn't actually for receiving 40 channels. You know? <laughs> Which got a laugh from the, from the, new, the, the local people. news guy yeah. with the mustache, whatever his name is. Keith. Keith. Keith McCord, is it? McKent? McCord? Whatever. Don't watch Anyways, TV. I don't watch TV either, so I, I felt bad because you know, the guy's a local celebrity. I don't even know who he is. <laughs> but um, anyway, doubtless he will not hear this podcast. So, um, But yeah, you know, we were pointing out that you know, it really is important because these guys, the Brazilian team has been here for the last week and a half, two weeks. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, they put their bow down 300 400 times a day you know yeah. between shots and it darn well does matter how long that front rod is for that purpose <laughs> i'm not kidding there's a people always there. think i'm kidding when i bring that. i'm not kidding so you don't want to be bending over too far to load an arrow negative you do not so uh you know it, and you know you're 30 am i looking at the right thing here oh no that's somebody else so so dave you know, you want to you want to have that long enough that you know you're comfortable putting the bow down, and that it's not vibrating like a like a trampoline when you're done shooting the shot, right? Right. So a stiff stabilizer, something like our Contour CS, Kaching. There's my mandatory plug. commercial plug, um, <laughs> which is pretty freaking awesome stabilizer, by the way. Yeah, I heard Mar um, Marcus really likes it. That's good, Marcus Dalmeda. Oh yeah, well he shot. He's a recurve. He guy. shot the standard contour. Yeah, but he wanted to yes. get the CS. Yeah, so that's I shot cool. the C, I've been shooting the CS. You've a been shooting. Bit. Tell yeah. me what you think. Um, at thirty-three inches, it's not quite as stiff as the Z Flex. So my thought is, for indoors, I'm going to continue rolling the Z Flex because that increased diameter stiffens things up. But it is a lot lighter than the Z Flex. It is. Yeah, like three ounces or something. And like that. outdoors, it might save you a whole lot of trouble in the wind. Outdoors, I may I may try to experiment with a twenty-seven or a thirty. A little Stiffen heavier up, yeah. weight on there, and it'll be stiffer. Yeah, I think it'll. I think it'll actually make a great outdoor stabilizer. Yeah, all right. For a compounder, for a recurver, yeah, indoor, outdoor, it's gonna be, it's gonna be the stuff. Okay, so um, side rods. Uh, you want a neutral balance when you're holding the bow? What do you want with a side rod? Um, I don't. I've talked about this a little before. I, yeah. I, on a compound, I want to have a little directional bias, but that's me. Um, for a lot of guys, you got to think about side rod length. It depends on if you're going to have it in or out or how you're going to angle that bar. So if you're a guy who likes to have the bow, you know, leaning to one side, you're going to kick the bar out. You can pretty much go as long as you want. Yeah. And the longer you go, the less weight you have to use to achieve the same amount of force. 
Um, if you're a guy, on the bow. yeah, if you're a guy who runs the bar in close to the string, you got to think about it hitting you. And a lot of guys, shorter draw lengths, can't use a 15 inch sidebar. You know, 12 is 12 is a safe bet for everybody. 30 and 12 is a, the best starting point, and that's what I always recommend to everyone. Unless you're a little taller guy, longer arms, it makes sense to get a little more leverage out there. Um, in my mind, anyways. Also, 12 keeps you from interfering with somebody next to you on the line in a place like Vegas. Yeah, I've seen some guys shoot 20-inch sidebars, V-bars, almost you know, at a hard angle. It's, it's ridiculous. I, I saw a guy on uh, one, of the, uh, one of the popular archery forums kind of bragging about his new 18-inch V-bars. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'll bet you're a real joy to shoot next to. <laughs> I bet he's got a lifted truck. <laughs> <laughs> And the button that blows black smoke. Yeah. All right. Uh, the other question from Handsome Dave, though, is is a pretty good one and, and one that a lot of folks can relate to. And he wants us to know if we can give some insights as to how to deal with aging eyes. When I got to my 40s, poor eyesight was waiting. I now wear glasses and get wigged out at the thought of contacts. Now, I know you've got a, a, a plan for dealing with this if and when it kicks in, but let me just kick in my insight on it. I shoot a lot of pistol, as some of our listeners know. And I also instruct. So that means partly uh, having to shoot a lot in low light. And in low light, trying to pick up your front sight quickly, you get over 40 years old and you're you're having a tougher time. So, you know, we have old guy sights on some, some of our guns out there, you know, and um, just big, bright, luminescent dots, you know, that kind of thing. So you can pick them up faster. Um, the biggest issue with with aging eyes is that you can't focus as fast and in lower light you can't pick out sharp details as well um so you're wearing glasses that's fine if you get wigged out at the thought of contacts you'd be surprised how quickly you can adapt because they work and it's way better than wearing glasses for everything everything i'm talking not just for archery just your general life contacts are better if you can manage to wear contacts absolutely get those he has switched to a huge peep for hunting, but I am a longtime 3D archer, tipped my toes in the outdoor target world. My glasses cause the peep and target to get elliptic. Should I use in-peep correction, verifier, clarifiers? Not if you're going to be shooting in the rain. Yeah, um, for 3D, a lot of times you, you almost have to have a clarifier. You've got to be able to see the definition on the target. Oh, to be able to pick out those yeah. Uh, yeah, the on, rings. On, uh, which there's... There's a lot of things that go into that. You know, if you're if you are using a clarifier, I recommend looking at uh, a product that just hit the market. And I have no affiliation to this, so you know, take it for what it's worth. I've also never used it, but it's called the Peep and Tom, and I've seen them for sale on Lancaster. It's basically an extended length peep, and I've seen you know a lot of guys who go to the they they shrink tube around their peep to get you know basically a one inch long shroud around the thing and clarifiers notoriously have issues with changing your left to right impact as the light that enters into the clarifier changes so that, so this extra length on the peep tube around the peep itself it's not a tubed peep don't confuse that um, helps with regulating what's actually entering in there so it's, it's like, like a, a little sunshade. soda straw stuck through the peep yeah it's basically a sunshade you know uh -huh. for your peep site and I think that's hundred percent necessary you know it's a necessity for a clarifier that i i always hated clarifiers because they they change the color of what you're looking at they change everything but you know that said i use one indoors but indoors the light's not changing yeah, you don't have to worry about it so even in outdoor target the light changes yes so outdoor target i don't use one i i prefer to see a little blur there and for the sure it's changing in 3d but you can't have a blur in 3d like you pointed out as no. much as you can for outdoor target no nope, it doesn't work um, I'm not a, I'm not an experienced 3D shooter, but I went and kind of took some licks this year with the ASA fellas and did podium at one of them. Mm -hmm. um, my first one, my second one, I did not do. So Reality well. kicked in. <laughs> Beginner's luck, maybe it was, but um, you know, I went and learned what I need for an equipment setup, and I think I'm going to go to a few more next year. And now I have a much better idea, and I think that Peep and Tom. In fact, I ordered two of them. So I will be trying those for 3D. Okay. So uh, Dave Castle, I hope that's helpful to you. You know, I, I will say another thing on the uh, the eyesight. I always try to <coughs> – now you see a lot of guys wearing shooting glasses and things like that. 
the uh, pillows, the pillows, Oakleys. And, yeah, I can't do that myself. I, I, it's just not something I'm comfortable with. I, I think I to get the, to get the glass where I need it. It's got to be so close to my eyes that I don't like the feeling. I fog them up pretty fast. Um, I'll continue to try it. You know, it does have merit. Everything about them, but I haven't found one that totally works for me yet. I've been wearing Oakleys for twenty years. Love them. I yeah. mean, you know. Yeah, I just can't shoot in them through my, you know, I, I see the, the glasses in the over the bridge of my nose and can't see through my peeps. So yeah. uh, something like the pillows, I can see through them, but I don't feel comfortable shooting in them. So I haven't gone that route. I'll, I'll continue to try and, stuff. And let's face it, who wants to look like that? <laughs> They're pretty big. They're pretty big. But, you know, and you can, you probably can attest that if you're looking for longevity in your eyesight, I mean, taking steps from a young age is important. Wear your sunglasses whenever you're outside. Yep. You know, even if you're not shooting in them, wear them when you're walking down range and back. Just protect your eyes. Yeah, I I always put them on after every end. I, I I just put them on just to make sure nobody pulls an arrow into my face. And like for us, where we're often dealing with snow, some polarized glasses really helps cut down on that. We get incredible glares in the winter time when the sun does come out. I mean, yep. it's it's pretty harsh on the eyes. So I've done that. Um, the, the other thing I'll say... Some supplement out there that you were talking about last ha- week? It hasn't hit the market yet. Oh, okay. This is completely separate from Easton or anyone here. Gotcha. But, um, I have been working with a company, and uh, you know, I guess you could call it an endorsement, and uh, but not really yet. <laughs> but they're, they're doing a, a just, supplement. Just in for, terms of full disclosure, though, you've been working with this company to try to get them started on this vision yeah, supplement. Right? They're, they're developing a vision supplement for specifically targeted towards precision shooters. Huh. So all sorts of shooting sports. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe that, and you can't argue with, you know, you should be taking your vitamins and things like that. Oh, yeah. you know, well, anything for sure, you can you know, do. So healthy lifestyle is the, you know, I got to say this, uh, if you're smoking, stop, if you want to protect your vision, because <clears throat> it's known that, you know, smoking is a contributor to a decrease in not just visual acuity, but also the adaptability of your lenses, you know, over time. Interesting. So yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's more than just bad for your, you know, other, yeah. other health issues. I, it's I've been lucky. Vision. You know, I've been lucky. I have 2015 vision and I think I'm a little bit farsighted. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know about this. I haven't ever thought about it, but within archery, would you say it's better to be nearsighted or farsighted? I would say that, um, you deal with what hand you've been dealt. And I'll tell you why. Because I know successful archers who have had absolutely atrocious eyesight. You know, uh, I'll... Uh, Im Dong Hyung is reputed to have bad eyesight, but he's never had any trouble recognizing me from across an archery field. So, (laughs) you know, I just, I was just hanging out with him three or four days ago in in Bangkok. And I can tell you that he, uh, he can see just fine. But I'm thinking of Rick McKinney, actually. You know, Rick Rick was famous for his uh, enormous, you know... Uh, big Coke bottle glasses, Big right? Coke bottle glasses. Yeah. And, um, you know, Rick's one of those guys, if he could have shot in contacts, he certainly would have. Um, you know, big advocate of contacts, if you can get him to work. Um, yeah, he kind of looked like uh, like a sunny soprano in those yeah. things. I mean, I imagine if you're shooting in glasses, you want a huge frame, right? You want to be looking through as much glass as possible. Well... You, you can get it as distortion-free as you can, mm-hmm. but that's hard with some prescriptions. So so here's the deal. My left eye, I'm legally blind, 2200. But with contacts, I have no astigmatism. I'm 2010. Thank goodness, right? Right. Because otherwise it would be a real problem. Yeah. But um, the, the advent of daily wear contact lenses, the advent of, of much better uh, lens forming for people who have astigmatism, there's no reason not to go try contact lenses, in my opinion, mm-hmm. so long as you go through a you know proper examination process and all that sort of thing. Yeah. You'll get used to it quickly enough. I'm, uh, I'm coaching this, this girl here locally, and, and I'm a level zero coach, to, to point that out. I have no coaching accreditations, but um, she's doing pretty good. Must restrain <laughs> myself from pointing out that an accreditation can be had by a cat. But yeah, I'm a level zero, and I'm going to keep it that way. Um, but I looked, I shot her bow. It was like 24 inch draw length, you know. So I shot her bow, and I'm like, "How do you?" I'm like, I, she was having some issues indoors, and I said, "Well, how do you even shoot this thing?" You know, like her scope and clarifier setup was so bad. She had probably a, you know, a 
four or five millimeter dot, a decent sized dot, eh, maybe six. Big. Yeah, pretty good sized dot. And it would completely wash out to where I couldn't even see it. And she said, well, no, I, you know, it's been okay. So <laughs> I, uh, I beckoned to her parents to maybe look at some other options. And they actually took her in. They found out she had a really bad contact prescription and got that changed, shot her personal best score on Saturday. So, you know, just goes to show the, the importance of what you're seeing. You, can't, you really can't hit what you can't see. There you go. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. We've uh, we've been overdue with this particular podcast. Oh, I'll just point out. You know, I was just in uh, Bangkok for the Asian Championship. Yeah, what happened there? Yeah, you know that uh, that was quite the quite the tournament. We had uh, we had the B team of Korea, so Im Dong Hyung, you know, guys like that. Uh, we had you know Lee Sang Young, guys like that. We had um, some of the top women who show up for the LH squad that are always mm-hmm. crushing it in Vegas. Some of them were there. Shooting outdoors. Huh? Uh-huh. Shooting outdoors very, very well. But without the golf gloves. Of course, it was 37C. Yeah. I, don't, I wouldn't want to wear a golf glove in 40, <laughs> in 99-degree in weather, 100% humidity. So I went from, uh, I went from you know, 99 degrees Fahrenheit and 100% humidity to Japan for four days. And I did a couple of great really had a good seminar at Meiji University. Shout out to, I know a couple of those pe- folks out there follow me on Twitter, which is pretty cool. And uh, they may be listening to the podcast. So, uh, good job back there at Meiji <laughs> University. And, um, you know, and then I came back here and it's freaking snowing. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome so, back to winter. Yeah. So Friday afternoon, I was, I was, uh, I was at the archery center and I just noticed I wasn't feeling so great. And, uh, I just ended up flat on my back for three days. Yeah. It was kind of funny. Um, little insight here. We had an employee leave. We had a lunch for, so, you know, George has just got back from Japan and naturally we go to a sushi place and we're, (laughs) we're like, you know, 500 miles inland. So, which violates my first rule of sushi. Never, never eat sushi in a place where you can't get to the ocean in an hour. (laughs) My favorite, my personal favorite was the steak sushi, of course. You know, no fish whatsoever. Which is ridiculous. That's totally inland sushi. <laughs> there's, there's no such thing as steak sushi. You uh, can there get, is, and I had a, it, and it was delicious. None of that stuff you guys <laughs> ate was sushi. None of it. And I'm okay with it that. It was all totally American. Yeah. So, so George didn't eat anything. I, I had a, a gyoza, one, and some green tea. Yes. And that was the only thing I ate the whole weekend, as it turned out. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, um, that wraps up our podcast, and I'm going to go back to a serious note, and this is no joke. Je suis Parisien. We are all Parisians in our sport, and we send you our best wishes to our friends in France. Stay strong, and we will see you in Nîmes. All the best. Thank you. Adios. Adios. Adios.